Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth in Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Adam Woodward. I'm David Jenkins. And I'm Hannah Strong. This week, it's a Christmas special, and the Little White Lies crew will be discussing their favourite films of the year. All coming up on Truth in Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Wow, there's not not used to kind of having four four people uh, on one record. Hope this doesn't descend into chaos. But yeah, how is everyone doing? Yeah, good. The whole gang's here. Tired, so very very tired. <laughs> it's it's crazy that to think that we're uh, ra- like I, I, it feels like only yesterday we were rounding up 2021, and look, look where we are now. Are you tired from a good hearty year of movies, or just general? I mean, we've just gone to print or going to print on the new issue, which I suppose is uh, maybe you don't want to talk too much about now. But Yeah, at, the, at time of recording, we've not quite gone to print, but by the time this goes out, it will have gone to print and I will be in a kind of like duvet, goose down, cocoon, crying probably. No, cry, crying happily, <laughs> crying. No, no, it has been, it has been a, a hardened year of film watching. And for me, it was a bit of a, a weird one because I didn't really go to any of the fall festivals. So I, I, I've been doing some frantic end of year catching up with like screenings and screeners. But I think I'm just about there. I still haven't seen She Said. Do I, do I need to see that? She Said the Harvey Weinstein one. Because I keep getting yeah. She Said and Women Talking confused. It's basically the same thing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've not seen She Said either. Um, I, I hear it's pretty good. Harvey Weinstein was annoyed about it, so I'm always keen oh, okay. to support. Yeah, keen to support anything that he's annoyed about. Okay, but I mean, we all know what happened, <laughs> so <laughs> kind of takes yeah. kind of takes yeah. the drama out of it fate a little bit. Fate accompli, really, yes. <laughs> God. But now we're coming to the end of the year. I know that Titan was something that you guys fully all agreed on. Were there any like massive debates this year? Were there huge disagreements as deciding as to what the top Little White Lies picks would be? No, I think we were all fairly in agreement. I mean, I would say there's, from my end, I, I'm definitely lagging behind the, these two in terms of what I've watched this year, what I've been able to watch. But um, I think the kind of big stuff, certainly what we'll go on to talk about later in this episode, we, we were sort of all broadly aligned on, which was nice. I don't think there was any films that like one of us loved and the other ones hated. I think that, that it, it was Avatar. kind of like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, even that, I would I would say that the impression I got from Hannah from speaking to her about it was not that she loved it, and and I didn't necessarily hate it. So it's sort of like, I had a, I had a good of like time. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I had I had a really good time at the cinema watching Avatar two. Would it have been on my top ten of the year? No, but it was a fun time. Can I ask you a question, Hannah? Sure. When you saw Avatar two, <laughs> were you of, of sound mind? <laughs> I did have a very bad toothache and I was on painkillers, but like. I, I, ah, I don't think, that, yeah, yeah, that's the way to see it. <laughs> I think, you know what? I think it was a case of being so, so sure I was going to hate it. And then I was just pleasantly surprised, which I think we should go into more films thinking this is going to be terrible because usually it's not. Most films I see are not bad, which is the great secret of being a film critic. Everyone thinks that we're, we, we hate everything, but no, m- most films are fine. That's that's my uh, hot take that all my years of being a film critic have taught me. Let's keep this in mind for when we mosey up to the the Babylon Wars 
of 2023. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> well, were there things that kind of did the opposite for you, Hannah? Were there any like things that you were really excited for and were massively disappointed in? Oh, I, I think one of the big disappointments, because it had been so hyped in the US, was uh, Barbarian, which, you know, everyone was kind of saying, oh, it's so good, it's, it's crazy. And then I saw it and I was like, oh, it, it's okay, I guess. Like, yeah, so that was maybe a case of the hype preceding it. Um, oh, I still need to watch that. I kind of lost interest when someone told me that Barbarian is an anagram of Airbnb. I thought, oh, I'm, I'm not interested anymore. But oh. I, will, I, will, I will catch up with it at some point. Oh, I didn't even realise no. that. Oh, oh, that makes me so grubby. <laughs> I've been had. <laughs> oh, well, we should wow. move on to some better titles than that. Yeah, let's let's crack on with the best films of the year. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to the Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. I mean, I have to say, I was slightly grinning when you were saying that there was a bit of a consensus because I knew that the first film was going to be one that Hannah would not be so thrilled about. But David, would you like to talk to us about your first pick? Yeah, just for context here, we're doing a little round robin and we've each picked two of our kind of personal faves. And I think all of these films will appear on our like official signed, sealed and approved top 30 list which will be published imminently. I think it'll be so out it will be it out will be, by the time it'll this be definitely out by the out. yeah so you you, you, <laughs> you should definitely go and explore others and, the, and and these these picks are very kind of like esoteric and personal and they're not necessarily like the top five or top six films as although the one of the ones we're going to be covering later is the number one film but we'll let you uh dangle a little before we uh, reveal that one but my first pick is a film called Apollo Ten and a Half, A Space Age Childhood by the filmmaker, the Texan filmmaker, Richard Linklater. Hannah Strong's Mega Bay. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I said that title in a bit of a weird way because as a sort of like emphasis of the fact that listeners might n- not be that aware of the film because it kind of came out in a very uh, hushed release it came out on netflix and was sort of just dropped on there and there was no festival screenings and there was no like rich richard inkletter didn't seem to do much press around it you know there wasn't the big high profile new yorker piece or new york times piece in, in in anticipation of the film and i suspect that when stuff like that happens i think that, that the industry parlance is the film's being quote unquote dumped meaning like they don't see much money in it they don't see much value in it i mean you know, whether whether the film's good or bad or not doesn't seem to matter but you know like it's the the, the, the potential to, to to really kind of put it in in the limelight there's deemed little value in doing that so you know i think i came to it as a you know a, a, a massive fan of his films and hoping that i'd see it, that, that i'd see the old magic there and I was blown away by it. And yeah, it's one of, if not my favourite films of the year. Just to give a little description, it is him returning to uh, the rotoscope technique he used for his films Waking Life and A Scanner Darkly. And whereas those films were quite kind of arty and, and weird and, and, and sort of, you know, really sort of doubled down on his pseudo-intellectual, very like verbose style, 
This one's very similar to, to, to the film The Fablemans by Steven Spielberg, which, which isn't coming out quite in time to make our uh, 2022 lists. But yeah, it's, it is this, I guess, a sort of comic revisitation of a childhood, possibly Linklater's, in which a young teenage boy is inducted to become a kind of human test case for the Apollo missions in uh, 60s Houston. And while you have this story as a backdrop of the kid doing training and be, he's been he's sort of plucked from school by these two black clad cia agents and 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 and, and it, it's it's a bit like this the, the episode of the simpsons where homer and barney have to enter into a contest to go into space but but actually this idea is used as a backdrop to explore the culture of 60s texas and i guess the sort of it's an exploration of nostalgia and americana and he, he just uses animation in this way to throw all these kind of trinkets and representations and, and design styles. And it really is a, a film about architecture and about design and culture and and how people lived at that time. And you see these films that are set in the past and, you know, you, and, and they've got this very, very kind of overzealous production design. And it's it's very it's sometimes very self-conscious where, you know, like, ah, look, we've got some era specific snickers wrappers or we've got old five pound notes whereas this just seems like he's used animation to actually transport you back to that time in a way that you don't have that stigma attached to like that the era is being recreated in this very kind of like stagey self-conscious way and it's just it's just a very funny quite quite silly film and 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 in the end just quite moving and and it's one of those films that i thought the impulse behind it is so pure and so lovely that i was just completely smitten by it so i'm planning to give it another whiz over over the christmas holiday so that was that was one of my top picks yeah i i couldn't agree with you more no matter what number one link hater hannah strong thinks but yeah i get i'm a big fan of this and the only reason i've heard about it was because i saw adam tweeting about it so it is a shame that i think a lot of people probably won't even be aware that this film exists i think we should i think we should give hannah a right to reply because i feel that we might, might be picking on her a bit here i i will say i haven't seen this film and it does sound more my street my my issue with richard link later is that i think he's a hack and i really hate boyhood and and the boyhood birdman wars of um whichever oscar year that was really did a number on me as someone who was very active on tumblr at the time and you know those scars run deep so you know i'm sure he's a very nice man but i i think that every film critic should have one just like unexplained nemesis uh, and he is yeah, mine. Agreed. So, <laughs> uh, but I, I actually think I will watch this over Christmas, having heard uh, Adam and, and David speak so kind of rapturously about it. Um, did we say it's on Netflix? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, For the record, he is a he. I, I've interviewed him before, and he is a, he is a very nice man. But I, you mentioned <laughs> David that he he didn't really do much press for this, and I was interested. I, I kind of felt like it missed it missed the boat of the sort of. You know, we had a couple of years ago, it was like the anniversary of the moon landing mm. and there was a lot of stuff. There was that amazing kind of documentary about it. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff around that time. I wonder whether this was kind of him making this in response to that or because I think maybe that's another thing that counts against it slightly. It, it does sort of feel like it's come out of nowhere a little bit. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it has any link to anything beyond his, his desire to do it. And to be honest, when you see the film, because it's not really about Apollo, no, uh, you know that 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 that's the MacGuffin, really. It's it's Boyhood too, Electric Boogaloo, with a bit of rotoscoping and kind of fantasy. Uh-huh. No, no, fantasy no, it's not. It's not, it's not Boyhood too. No, it's not. It's not. <laughs> There's no mention of the Beatles. 
Well, it's a Christmas miracle. Hannah's going to watch this and love it. <laughs> Adam, what about you? Your first pick is a slightly splashier title that probably most people will be aware happened this year. Yes, I would. Th- I, well, I hope so. Regular listeners of this show will probably know that I'm not a big comic book movie fan. And actually, it's, we should say it's been a pretty dire year for comic book movies, which actually I think is is a good thing. If you consider how much they've dominated the sort of mainstream, certainly American filmmaking market now for like a decade. I often indulge this fantasy or this thought of like, what if I could hit a button and go back to like 2008 and conspire to make Iron Man a flop? What kind of films would we be getting now? What would we have had in the interim, like 10 years in terms of like big sort of tempo blockbusters? But I think even on that timeline, I could I can see a point at which Robert Pattinson plays the Batman or plays Batman. And I think this film, this film by Matt Reeves, really, I think beyond a couple of films which we maybe talk about later, or, or maybe one we're not, but I think, yeah, Top Gun Maverick was another kind of big blockbuster that, that kind of did well this year, obviously. But I think I think this one for me is like up there in, in the kind of upper echelon of like really solid American blockbusters from the last, maybe even like decade. I mean, it's very different. I think it falls down slightly with the kind of NAF post-credits thing they have to do now. Although... You know, I wouldn't begrudge if if they made like a spin-off Joker movie with, is it Barry Keehan? But aside from that, it's a very self-contained story. It's like kind of building on the legacy of of this like iconic character that we that we've you know seemingly had every kind of iteration of now over the past 60, 70 years. But I genuinely think they, they do something quite new and, and it's just a really tight script. It's a really solid story. It has all the kind of machinations of like a good kind of detective story. I think the the, the kind of end set piece with the sort of flooded town hall and the kind of flood barriers being all detonated and is is just like a really on on a kind of blockbuster spectacle level is just like really entertaining but i just think that you got a really solid story a really amazing cast i mean robert hattinson i think was like a bit of a sort of odd choice in many people's minds but when it was announced and off the back of sort of ben affleck and christian bale playing these much kind of more grizzled brawnier versions this idea of taking batman back a few years and and, and introducing him at the point at which Bruce Wayne is still very much in, in mourning from the loss of his parents. He's very much isolated and he hasn't quite kind of fully stepped into this this mode of avenging kind of superhero. You know, he, he he's still kind of figuring it out a little bit. I love the little relationship he has with Jeffrey Wright's uh, Commissioner Gordon and, and they they almost have this little tag team duo thing going on and then and then with Zoe Kravitz coming in as Catwoman I think they they have that there's there's this amazing really kind of palpable kind of sexual prison going on through the movie with with those two and and yeah it's not overplayed there's there's been a lot of talk in the last few years of like certainly with these with these big kind of comic book movies there's lots of beautiful actors in there but there's very little in the way of sexiness really I mean like I don't want to kind of labor the point but I really I really feel like we've been kind of missing that from from kind of mainstream movie making for quite a long time and this this for me is the film that kind of like brought sexy back to blockbusters there's the poster quote (laughs) (laughs) well yeah it's a bit the michael keaton michelle pfeiffer thing where it's just like a you're establishing that if batman exists he's probably kind of a weird guy and also that he does want to have sex with catwoman and who wouldn't <laughs> you know and, and vice versa i mean it's like i think it it plays to those two actors zoe kravitz and robert patton's strengths amazingly well 
And it's a, it's the sort of thing that just on paper, maybe you'd sort of question it and you'd sort of circle a few names and a few things and say like, hmm, you know, Matt Reeves, even the director, he he came on and I'm right in saying he he directed Cloverfield or something. what was his first kind of big film? He he did something like that, and then yeah. Uh, yeah, and then since then he's been this kind of journeyman. You know, he's done a few Planet of the Apes movies, and I think I think he's like a pretty solid but un- unspectacular director. And I think there would be a temptation off the back of the kind of Snyder films and the Nolan films to. Well, I don't know. That, that, that's that, they're kind of like fairly big shoes to fill in terms of like what they're doing with you know this world and these these characters. But I just think he does he does something by taking the character almost like back to basics a little bit. I just think it gives him so much more room to play with, and and it's just it's it's a movie that has a lot of fun. It's not afraid to be a bit a bit kind of edgy and a bit sexy. There's some just amazing supporting roles. I mean, Colin Farrell. He's he's rightly getting a lot of kind of awards buzz for his role in um, Banshees of Inisherin. But for me, this is like up there with one of the great kind of supporting turns of the year his his sort of penguin oswald cobblepot cobblepot is it it's so good that he goes the opposite way from danny devito because i was so kind of you know devito's turn in batman is so iconic and i was very concerned and yeah colin very wisely doesn't try to do anything similar and he injects this like skeeziness but also the the sense that this guy is actually like very clever like he's kind of integral in them like cracking the big case and he has one of the best moments in the film but sort of in a sort of in an inadvertent way right yeah yeah that's what i love about this movie is it has these kind of humorous moments even (laughs) even the kind of moments with paul dano's sort of villain i think it would be very easy to just paint that character as this kind of incel i mean all of his stuff where he's broadcasting on whatever like you know (laughs) He's got a red, he's it's like yeah it's like a reddit where he's got like 500 followers yeah yeah, yeah. There, there's just some little there's some good little gags in there which i think i think actually won't won't necessarily age the film or date the film too much in, in years gone by but it feels very kind of like very of the moment some of it but not too on the nose and it's just a, it's a film which isn't afraid to kind of have fun and be a bit cheeky and a, a bit cheesy as well i say maybe the, the the only bit even though i like the moment in the film the only bit which I think marks it down slightly is like the ending visually as a kind of piece of like Batman iconography to end on is is him riding off on this kind of bat bike motorbike thing. And it is it is almost like exactly the same as the end of Dark Knight Rises, which uh, Nolan, I think, just because he's he's got that knack of like bravura, like filmmaking. And I think he pulls it off slightly better. So that's maybe like where I'd mark it down. But beyond that, just, yeah, I had a lovely time with it. Hannah, you had a lovely time. Well, you had a mid-time at Cannes, but you had a lovely time with a film that premiered at Cannes. you want to talk to us about your first pick? Yeah, my first pick that we, we did just briefly mention is Top Gun Maverick, which I was not expecting to have the time of my life in this film. I was not expecting to go and see this film six times at cinema this year. What can I say? You know, Tom Cruise, the, the man is insane on, on many levels, but he knows how to mount a blockbuster spectacle. The, the, the Mission Impossible movies have really been like, you know, kind of continued evidence that this guy is like willing to risk his life in the pursuit of uh, blockbuster cinema. But this film was, yeah, I mean, I, I'd seen Top Gun. Um, it's actually one of my mom's favourite films. Whenever we watch it, she's like, now you've got to look at the jets. You've got to like pay attention to the jets because she's obsessed with like how kind of accurate and like intricate the, 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 the plane work is. That was kind of what I was going into this with. Like, okay, the original is like, you know, cheesy, very of its time. And 
I saw this just before Cannes, like a, a press screening, and I came out and I was just really exhilarated. I think it is just, you know, we were just talking about like blockbuster cinema, and I think this is such a throwback, but in a good way. It's, you know, the story isn't too complicated. Uh, it's very much moored in the, not only the charisma of Tom Cruise, but of his supporting cast. We've got Glenn Powell and surprisingly, Miles Teller is very charismatic in this film and Jennifer Connelly. And it's it's really just this combination of what I consider very solid screenwriting and real like technical craft. Like so much kind of effort has gone into making this film look like a film and not some green screen monstrosity where you can tell none of it is actually happening. And it's been very funny watching the press tour where everyone is, you know, all the kind of young stars are talking about like how grueling it was because they were learning how they would actually fly these planes and, you know, they were getting um, sickness from the, uh, uh, what's it, the like the gravitational pull and the jets and things and Miles Teller had to go to hospital because he had jet fuel literally in his blood system and um, Tom Cruise is just like yeah I had a lovely time (laughs) you know I I just really I don't want to support the fact that this man uh, kind of does seem to have some very um, strange ideas about how a film set should operate. It sounds like he's quite a hard man to work with. In terms of payoff, I mean, yeah, this is this is absolutely the best time I had at the cinema this year. And I took my mum and she hasn't been to the cinemas since Monsters University came out, which I think was a about 10 years ago, probably a bit longer. And she turned to me 10 minutes in and she looked at me and she said, this is so good. <laughs> I've talked about my mum on this podcast before. She's not really a film person. So for her to say that, that's like the equivalent of like two thumbs up from Roger Ebert. Like, you know, she was so fully invested in this. And I always like it when you can go to the cinema with someone who isn't a cinema person and just see the kind of the joy they're getting out of watching a film. And that that was very, yeah, very much like on a film critic level. I think it's a very well executed and enjoyable blockbuster that actually looks like a blockbuster and not awful like a lot of the big budget films nowadays but also just yeah kind of having that like personal connection to it and being able to kind of enjoy it with my mum and I will say as well this was the first film I'd ever seen in 4DX and oh my god like this is what 4DX was invented for I've never bought into that but I went with uh, my friend Diana who has been on this podcast and we sat down and we were like this is going to be like, you know, our seat might move a bit. We were getting thrown around. We were getting sprayed in the face. It started snowing at one point. There were like 15 people in that room. And I felt like we were friends by the end of it. We really bonded over that experience. So yeah, just, just the best time I've had at the cinema this year. Have you seen there's like a someone's done a good side by side of like the opening of the original next to this one. Oh, yeah. and it's like beat for beat. I mean, part of I think the the brilliance of this film is that Joseph Kaczynski, he's not just kind of like trying to do a sort of tribute act to the original. I think he re- he's really sort of tried to understand what it is that Tony Scott does in the original that makes it so good. And that that kind of side by side comparison, I think, shows you like because it's not exactly shot for shot, but it's it's more kind of it's hitting the the, the right beats. And I, I mean, I suspect that's probably why your mum and people who maybe have more of that nostalgic kind of connection with it actually responded in, in the way they did because it just it gets you straight in and it's I think the opening kind of credit opening sequence is like probably the best of the year 
It's fantastic. And I think as well, it's nice to see a sequel that comes this long after that actually it kind of has like respect for the film it's a sequel to. I think a lot of the times there's this like impulse to make it kind of a bit like, oh, we know that that film was really cheesy and, you know, kind of play down the association. But no, I mean, I guess because Tom Cruise was so, so heavily involved in the making of this and you get a little bit of a sense that Kaczynski was kind of like, you know, he brought this man on because they'd worked before and he knew that Kaczynski would kind of like do do, do what he said, basically. But obviously Christopher McQuarrie was involved as well. And I think like there's just a real understanding of how to mount a film like this and how to tell a story like this. And before anyone gets on my back, yes, I know it is like US military propaganda but like who cares it's all US military propaganda propaganda. (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna discount that I mean (laughs) let me just add that Maverick is far superior to the original Top Gun in every in every oh yeah way. absolutely so, I yeah. haven't seen the original Top Gun I have seen Top Gun Maverick three times <laughs> but yeah <laughs> works without the nostalgia I think that the technology the advances in technology and filming have just made the, the experience of Top Gun Maverick work so much better and, and and I do think it is funny that there's lots of scientists saying oh yeah if someone really did bail out of an aircraft at Mach 10 they would be like vaporized <laughs> and it's like yeah, but it's Tom Cruise. You've got like Neil deGrasse Tyson going like, oh, no, no. I was going to say, that's a very good segue into this next one. Yeah, we should move on to another blockbuster. This is like, this is not very Little White Lies. <laughs> David, you want to talk about your second pick? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. This this does, it does seem like we've gone quite blockbuster heavy on, on, on this year, which is fine. And on the notes of defying the laws of physics in entertaining ways, we have the film RRR, which stands for Rise, Roar, Revolt. Though I think if you look at different translations of the title, because it's an Indian film in the Tegelu dialect, it can stand for various different things, but for English-speaking audiences, it's been translated as Rise, Raw, Revolt. And, I mean, just to give some context, the film kind of came out to slightly little fanfare as, you know, a lo- a, I think a lot of Bollywood films do come, come out in the UK and they're very specifically focused to kind of expat audiences. And, and very quickly, there started to be kind of rumblings of like, no, this, you really have to kind of see this one because it's just takes things to the next level. It is, it has got things in it that you will never have, have seen before. And, you know, there was this kind of groundswell and, and a lot of like, I think a lot of people would take notice and suddenly there was a lot of people I follow on Letterboxd who are kind of like quite hardcore cinephile types who were logging it going, oh my God, this is the second coming. This is this is astonishing. You absolutely have to see it. And then, I mean, I caved to the peer pressure as I should do. And I mean, it's a three hour film. So I think that was maybe, there was maybe a slight barrier there in my desire to take the take the leap on this one. It really is just the most jaw-dropping thing I've seen this year. I mean, sorry to sort of like crack the whip again against Avatar 2, but like Avatar 2 ain't got nothing on this. I mean, you know, <laughs> there, there is there is stuff here that, that I, had, I, I was rubbing my eyes thinking that did not happen. I was talking to my wife slack-jawed at 15, 20-minute intervals and for, and for very different reasons. So that's... So, to explain what the film is, it's set in colonial era India, like northern India, and it is the kind of British colonial armies are very much depicted as the most pantomime of pantomime villains. They are moustache twirling, they are cackling, they are uh, they are children stealing. You know, they are they are the absolute worst of the worst. And 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 the director SS Rajamuli 
makes no bones about about what what it is he's doing here. And you've got one character called Breen. He is Indian born, but he has been inducted into the sort of British peacekeeping forces. And there is basically a sequence early on that establishes his kind of strength. <laughs> there, there is this huge kind of like pan out zoom of a kind of police station surrounded like 200 deep every direction with like braying hordes of people with sticks and hammers and bats and and they're they're trying to break into this place and he's just sort of stood there at attention staring them out and there's a guy in the crowd who's who throws a a stone at at the commander and the commander says get that guy and obviously all the other the policemen are looking around going no mate (laughs) that's that is not possible and then our guy just literally leaps over the fence and it's like one versus 2000 fight and you think well this is ridiculous you know this (laughs) this would never happen but the way the film works is that slowly 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 you're like i i'm being convinced that one guy could physically overpower a crowd of 2000 (laughs) i'm i'm actually getting to the point where i believe this and it goes on and goes on and you're like oh my god this is happening this is actually happening <laughs> and and then you, it's this set piece and by the time it, you get to the end of it you're just like what did i just see what what, what? this is this is like the the matrix i mean yeah I, I i i even just trying to describe it i'm i'm sort of lost for words but this is just what this is one scene and there are many 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 scenes like this and it is it is essentially a kind of catalog of these crazy set pieces with little kind of contextual interludes in between and it's not just an action film because it has a incredible physical dance off in the middle as well in which 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 acts as a kind of like romantic set piece the two main actors are just completely astonishing i think i I think if nothing else i've not seen you know an action movie with the chemistry between the two leads that this film has i mean there there are moments where these guys are out fighting together and there's conflict between them as well and you want them to be friends but there's stuff that is kind of keeping them apart and there'll be moments where they'll just sort of cast a glance at each other and look and they'll 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 clock each other for a second and you every time you're watching it going yes yes come on Get back, you know, you, you, you're you kind of physically willing them to get back together and join together to do this, to, to fight against the colonialists. So, yeah, it's it's this kind of cartoon, grotesque, it's comic, it's romantic. The acting is all over the place. The script is kind of like, it feels like it's gone through 10 Google Translates, but it's its own brand of wonderful. And I absolutely loved it. It is a film that I think you could easily find fault with if you were looking for it, but... I think within minutes, it convinces you to give yourself up to what it is. And, and when you do, you're in. And it's, and it's just, it's plain sailing from there. Oh, more CGI was not the way that I kind of expected <laughs> this to go. But yeah, it's such a joyful film. I did see it in the cinema and I, I couldn't gun to my head tell you what it was about. But <laughs> but yeah, I mean, probably- I, th- I, I I agree. It's pushing the CG envelope in that it's it's using it in it uses CG in very very conspicuous ways, and you can see the join. But at the same time, you're like, I can't believe they they went there and did that, and it just works. I mean, it's sort of like even the CG feels handmade and hand rendered, and there's some sort of human impulse behind it. Like we're gonna push it. Is it just me, or is uh, are we? All making a lot of subtle digs at Thor, Love and Thunder, or is that just, <laughs> yeah, is that just yes. what's coming to my mind? Well. 
I was just thinking, was it Kill Bill 1 or 2 that had the tagline, a rip-roaring rampage of revenge? That sort of applies to this, if you're going to go to the, yeah, you know... That's, that's what an the, RRR, what RRR could, 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 yeah. could stand for, yeah. You're listening to Truth in Movies. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there's always something new to discover on the platform. After being so devastated by Aftersun, I wanted to switch gears into something hilarious and audacious, and the African Desperate from Martin Sims proved just the ticket. It's a piercing art world satire with a trippy, achingly cool aesthetic, and I couldn't recommend it enough. I'm currently catching up with Lars von Trier's cult show The Kingdom from the early 90s. Movie going into miniseries is huge, and The Kingdom Exodus is a must-watch event. If you've not seen the original series before, you can also stream newly restored versions of both seasons now on Movie. The new series begins on November 27th, with new episodes premiering weekly all through to Christmas. With Movie, each and every film is hand-selected by their dedicated team of curators. You can choose from an eclectic mix of timeless classics, award-winning masterpieces, and festival-fresh gems. It's like having your own personal film festival. Streaming anytime, anywhere. Try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash LWLies. That's M-U-B-I dot slash LWLies for a whole month of great cinema for free. Adam, right at the other end of the spectrum is your next pick. Yeah, so I'm going to just momentarily bring us down to earth a little bit. This is sort of a cheat because I actually saw this film last year at the San Sebastian Film Festival, but it was released this year in, in cinemas in the UK, so I think it counts. Yeah, my, my next pick, I think, I think I put it as my sort of number one, actually, or at least very high up the list, was Terence Davies' Benediction, which is a very, very sad film, but a very beautiful film, very poignant film about the life, really, of Siegfried Sassoon, who's sort of, you know, hailed as one of our great sort of wartime poets. He, he sort of fought in the First World War and was quite, you know, from his experiences, ended up quite embittered and, and rightfully quite scathing of, of the kind of, you know, the government and the British war, war machine at the time and um, published a famous poem, which kind of ended up with him being sent to a, a sort of military uh, psychiatric hospital in Scotland. And the film kind of picks up with him, you know, spending, is not quite sure how how, how long exactly but he's he's there for a good while and it's kind of him processing and dealing with the fallout of his his kind of very public railing against this this war and at the time a very a very kind of brave to the point of actually putting yourself in kind of harm's way being that outspoken against against the war in a very kind of patriotic time and the film kind of just chronicles his his life it's jack loden plays siegfried and he's um He's someone who, to my mind, hasn't really appeared in all that much, but he's he's a he's a he's a really great young actor, and I, I think I just lo- love him whenever he's on, whenever he pops up in something. Yeah, I'm terrified he's going to be the next Bond because, like, I really don't want him to be taken away from us and and, and lumped in that because I, I think he's great. It's funny you say that because I, I think whether it's just because he kind of, he, you know, he wears a tux and he has a bit of a clipped British accent in this, I don't know. But when I did see Benediction for the first time, I did think, oh, you know, if they wanted to kind of go away from Daniel Craig and, and take Bond back to the character's kind of roots a bit more and, and, and make him a bit younger, Jack Loudon would not would not be a bad shout. But I know I agree. I think I think you wouldn't want to see him now be kind of restricted to just working in, in sort of franchise movies for the next decade or so, because I think he's, he's just such a talented young actor. Um, and the whole cast here here are really great the script i mean i, I wasn't a, a massive fan of uh, terence davis's last film i mean for the record i think he's probably the greatest living british director 
but you know it doesn't make films all that often and a, a quiet passion was his one before this and i think that that for me just yeah it didn't quite work with this one he, he's kind of i think going back to a sort of time and material he knows a bit a bit he's a bit more comfortable operating in and there's just some beautiful performances it's also a film as much as i say it's kind of a sad film and, it, and it's very poignant it, it's also a film of like of real light and and hum, humor and humanity and i think that's that's kind of what i took away from it for all that it is this sort of elegy for essentially a generation of young men that were wiped out during this conflict as as a kind of like personal story it's not all kind of doom and gloom you know he has he has these kind of experiences and 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 meets people and and you know falls in love and i think the only thing which people i think were quite critical of at the time were the the more contemporary scenes of of siegfried in later life as played by peter capaldi which i think quite deliberately kind of take you out of this um almost semi kind of dreamlike earlier kind of biographical part of the story and it's this very yeah the the, the kind of scenes that are set later are, 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 are even much more cold and kind of detached and i think watching it a second time i actually got on with capaldi's performance a little bit better i'm not i'm still not sure he's like perfectly cast in it but those scenes set up the ending really well i think yeah i mean the ending is like a real kind of gut punch but along the way there are these really beautiful like life affirming moments and and yeah i I think davis is just like working on a a different level to like most other filmmakers at the moment i wish he'd take that on board because he always does seem to talk about himself as being this terrible failure he's a guy i mean I've, i've actually met him not not really interviewed him but he's he is a kind of you know very unassuming i think he is the reason he takes a long time to make films is because I, I, I think he's a bit of a perfectionist but also someone who's certainly like been crippled by kind of self-doubt over the years and but you know as i say he's strongest when he's kind of writing and, and making films about what he knows i guess and there's whether he sort of sees anything of himself in siegfried's story i you know that's i wouldn't want to say but i think you can certainly kind of read between the lines of it and it, it, it feels like a much more personal film when you watch it than maybe it may it might seem on paper so hannah final pick which is also going to appear on the little white lies list what would you like to talk about i would like to talk about jordan peele's nope which was one of our big most i think everyone here was very excited for this one and wow what a picture it really for me like I, I was excited about it, having very much enjoyed Get Out and Us, but I think this might be my favourite of his films. I think it's just such a a weird, funny, gross, genuinely unsettling film about, yes, about aliens, but also about media and the exploitation of labour and spectatorship. And imagine being a filmmaker able to tie all those threads together in such an interesting and coherent fashion. I remember seeing a lot of takes when this came out and people seemed very confused by the film and, and very much like, oh, I don't understand what he was trying to say. I think it's a very straightforward film in a lot of ways. It's the story of a family who are kind of enshrined in Hollywood. They run Haywood Horses, which is this Hollywood institution which trains horses for the films and has ties back to the kind of the early days of moving images. And this is, of course, Kiki Palmer and Daniel Clear, who are such a great double act. I think they have such amazing chemistry together. I hope they get to work together again because I just 
there's the scene early on where they're kind of they're on a set together and, and then uh, Daniel's character turns up and is kind of he's very much the guy behind the scenes in in the business and doesn't really like to kind of interact <laughs> with, with the people they work with and so he's kind of giving this safety briefing and then his sister uh, Emerald turns up and she gives this like very like it, it feels rehearsed but off the cuff at the same time like spiel about the history of Haywood horses and she just lights up the screen whenever she's on the screen you're just you just want more of her and thankfully uh, Jordan Peele really gives Kiki the role I think a lot of us have been hoping for for a long time like where she's able to kind of get these great comedic moments but also she gets to do some really cool stunt work and do the Akira bike slide and just really like be a, a, a kind of a low-key like action star it's not really an action film but there are some like incredible like stunt sequences and then we have Stephen Yeun in this like quite unlike anything else he's done before this supporting role as this kind of Asian American cowboy ex-child star which is such an incredible sentence to say and has this amazing flashback scene where it tells the story of like him uh, as a child and the kind of trauma that he carries from this I don't want to spoil it for anyone that's not seen it if you've not seen it already like come on what are you doing with your life like it's been out quite a while but um in the for the for the sanctity of not ruining someone's Christmas um yeah he has this incredible flashback sequence which explores something that happened to him as a child that traumatized him but also has led to this kind of really strange relationship he has with like spectacle and creating what would you say like creating spectacle I guess he's very much a showman and yeah I just think it's such a amazingly mounted film all the day for night stuff that they shot is just incredible I don't really think anyone is doing it like Jordan Peele at the moment and it's I, I saw this twice. I think I saw it twice in IMAX and I, and I was just so thrilled to have got to see it in such an amazing way because it is like, I, I, I'm saying this film is about so many things, but it's also, yeah, it's about movie making and this 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 incredible scene involving um, a hand crank camera that, that is invented. <laughs> and there's never a wasted moment in this film. Every moment in this film is used so economically and... Peel kind of knows that you have to have these like moments of tension and moments of relief in a blockbuster and you're constantly kind of on the edge of your seat wanting to know how things are going to turn out and yeah I I, I really I, I'm actually talking about it wanting to watch it again right now like that I've talked myself into probably going to watch it again tonight because I think it is just such an amazing technical achievement but also just there's so much rewatch value in it there's things that you notice more and like you know you can watch it a second time and third time and, and get more out of it and notice these incredible details not only in the production but also in the performances and the costume design and yeah I'm I sound very like enraptured about this film but I, I genuinely yeah I when we were putting together this list there was no contest in kind of terms of, of us all of us were like yeah it's got it's got to be on there one of the things watching it again like so the film opens right with this what is revealed to be a sort of flashback sequence with Gordy, this this TV chimp, and obviously narratively it connects later to to Stephen Yun's character, but just as a kind of as a piece of not quite exposition, but I guess a way to kind of set the tone for the film. I would just say like watching it again to anyone who hasn't seen it or, or maybe is setting themselves up for a rewatch, like pay close attention to that 
to that kind of opening sequence. And actually, for me, it's like, I think at the time, there were people who kind of saw that as a bit of a random thing or like a kind of non sequitur that's like, well, what sort of why is it? Why is this in here? But it does the same thing as like the Iraq scenes at the start of The Exorcist. It's like you, you can't really imagine the movie without it after you've seen it. It just like sets the tone and contains so much that sort of like sets up the rest of the film and kind of what you're meant to be feeling basically. So yeah, I think I think just Jordan Peele is like fucking clever, clever guy. I, I agree. I, I just felt that like it was one of those films that when the first shot appears on the screen, it is a real just like humdinger. And, you, and, and it's almost like... It's it's an all bets are off moment. Like you you know from that first shot that the likelihood this is going to be good is very very high. You know, and 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 it just everything about that shot as it appears on the screen, it exudes confidence. It's got that kind of surprising element to it. It's you know I think that there's a lot of films this year that have been kind of you know as with every year that are described as Kubrickian, and for me that that term is just tossed around it very sort of willy nilly, and there there is no film. Aside from the fact that there are kind of, you know, quite a lot of literal parallels to 2001 A Space Odyssey, there's no filmmaker working on that actual register, like acknowledging the fact that Kubrick has these kind of weird aspects to his movies that a lot of other directors just take as kind of like, oh, he was technically precise, that are kind of self-reflexive and and really kind of exploring certain themes, also looking at themselves and what they are. And like, Nope is like an all-timer film about like, what, what it means to make films and what it means to pick people and artists and creators to actually jo- join together and collaborate on making this kind of weird cinematic creation. And it does that amazing thing of operating as a metaphor without ever dispensing with the kind of the genuine emotions that you get from the actual surface level drama that 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 makes it sound very kind of technical and but but it absolutely isn't yeah uh, what a picture i think the moment i i knew that this was going to be incredible was when um, the, the first thing we see in this film before we even have that incredible opening scene is is this title card which has a quote from the bible from um, the old testament anyone that i went to catholic school but anyone that knows the old testament knows that is like the good shit that is like the fire and brimstone everyone's gonna fucking die like that's the hardcore like the good stuff in the bible and it's this amazing quote from Nahum 3.6. I did just Google this because I wanted to repeat it because I think it's so hardcore. And and then the line is, I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile and make you a spectacle. And I turned to Campbell A. Campbell, who was sitting next to me, and we just looked at each other like, this is going to be a journey. Like, And it was. And then that quote applies to uh, not only the kind of the alien threat within the film, but also like the film itself and this idea of exploitation within movie making and participating as an audience not only watching films but watching news watching social media the things we choose to consume and I think it's just I love films that make you as an audience member kind of feel complicit and um yeah I I just would love to just take a peek in Jordan Peele's mind for one day and then all that stuff that came out after this film came out where he had tweeted about six seven years ago about chimp attacks <laughs> and that's all, all I'm going to kind of say on that he tweeted he, he set us up he gave us all the clues um, and yeah I, I kind of hope they bring this back in cinemas um, in the way that like Get Out and us sometimes come back in um, I would definitely love to see this again with an audience I think it's again I keep talking on, on this ish, this episode about like a good time at the movies but it, it just really is like seeing it with other people all kind of like gasping at the, the real like set piece moments in this and there are like some incredible sequences there's a, a moment 
in, in the kind of the Hayward house. And there's a moment at Stephen Yun's uh, little, little dupes uh, ranch uh, that really just make you like kind of dizzy with like the spectacle of it all, which is the point. I, I sound quite verbose about this one, but I really do think it didn't get enough praise, in my opinion. I think people were kind of a little bit down on this one or maybe just didn't really give it the kind of time it deserved really but but we yeah i'm i'm i can't wait to see this again yeah i I agree i think there's a you know there's a lot of contemporary filmmakers or kind of people working on that level who who quote unquote making films for like the big screen but i think what you've touched on there that idea of like a a, a kind of communal experience of like being in a room full of strangers essentially or or maybe a few friends that where where you're all kind of in there together experiencing it going on that ride together that that is just something that i think jordan peele maybe more than anyone else you know working at that level today kind of gets that as much as he delivers the spectacle and and the, the fun stuff it's like that's the part of the movie going experience and movie making experience you can tell he really loves and like he i think yeah he just he just gets that and it's just, it was the same with Get Out, the same maybe to a slightly lesser extent with us, but he, he's just a master now at, at, at kind of engineering these moments that are absolutely made for this sort of collective experience. Yeah, no, it does seem strange. What people kind of emulate from Peel seems to be the wrong part to me because like the, the, the metaphor of it is always very interesting that the man just understands filmmaking as a form on such a kind of higher plane of existence than it seems like most people do. David, do you want to say anything else? I guess just to say thanks for listening, everyone, this year and that we've got an absolute ton of stuff to uh, to, to be talking about in the new year and that, yeah, we're, not, we're, we're, we're having a, a week-long break after this week and then we'll be back in January. Yeah, and the new issue won't be uh, far behind that. No, no, we'll we'll we'll, be, we'll probably be announcing the new issue on the next episode. And we'll have on the website the 2023 preview dropping New Year's Day on the 2nd of January. So if you are looking ahead to the next year, there will be 100 films for you to get excited about. This is always my favourite part of the year. Oh my God. Like starting to look forward to I, it. I was proofreading this yesterday and it was just like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, this, this is fun. There is There is a lot of good stuff happening in 2023 well we'll kind of wrap up by saying have a very merry christmas and if you've got thoughts on these films you can email us at truth and movies at tco london or tweet us at lw lies thanks very much for tuning in and hope you're all having a lovely time around the christmas tree if you enjoy the show you can leave us a review or subscribe wherever you get your podcast truth and movies is hosted by me Layla latif and my guests this week the full little white lies crew david jenkins hannah strong and adam woodward the podcast is produced by tco london and edited by bob stankus 